Michael, do you think we're ready to get a little closer? You mean like actually record this podcast in the same room where not our respective closets with blankets over our heads? Exactly. I don't know about you, but I find myself craving more in-person connection these days. Well, that's two of us. Which is why renowned jeweler David Yerman has created its Come Closer campaign, which celebrates the joy of closeness and connection in our challenging times. Featuring intimate images of Scarlett Johansson, a native New Yorker, and Henry Golding, it's shot against the backdrop of David Yerman's perennial inspiration and home of New York City. So, do you think I could get a little closer to Scarlett Johansson then? No, Michael, I don't think so. But you can get closer to David Yerman. To learn more and to shop the collection, visit davidyerman.com. Happy Saturday. It's February 19th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. We are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday, Ashley. Okay, Michael, I was late to this recording session because I have to tell you, I cannot get enough of inventing Anna. I'm so sorry. I was like watching it this morning. Just when we thought we were done with grifters, remember, we said like we're over them. We don't need them anymore. Then this show comes on board and it's like everything you and I like in a television program. So how deep, how much, why, what do you got for me? All right. Well, I love the pace of it. It's just so fast and furious. Anna Klumski is so good in this type of role as Jessica Pressler. I like all the myriad characters involved. Like they're funny. It's well casted. It's a little ridiculous. It's campy and over the top, but I'm still here for it. How do you like Julia Garner from Ozark, who was awesome in Ozark and is awesome in the new season. But I think she's pretty fantastic, right? She's great. And she was great in The Americans, too, by the way. I mean, her accent took me a while to get a handle of it first. It was like a little jarring, but now I'm a huge fan. I think she gets the whole cipher aspect of her, which she even had in Ozark, which is like you can't really tell what's behind the eyes sometimes. But yeah, a little campy, a little kooky. But I mean, it definitely it's like you just can't probably like a real griff. You know, you should turn away from it, but you keep sort of like sticking around, right? Yes. Yeah. One of the weird things about Inventing Anna is that this is relatively recent history. I mean, a lot of this story came to light just before the pandemic. Anna Sorokin was only recently released from prison. This all feels very familiar and novel. And you know, I know a lot about this story. We've talked about it a lot here on Morning Meeting, but I think it did manage to expose some new layers of it. And that was really illuminating. One of the issues that Inventing Anna really thrust into relief for me was this notion of the media as manipulator, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen that play out so much, especially in terms of like these tiny little stories that could be tiny or could be huge, but the way that they're covered in the press really makes them what they are. It just made me think of this Kanye West and Julia Fox thing too, like the most important six-week romance in history. A moment of silence for the Broken Hearts Club. They did break up on Valentine's Day, Michael, and you know that's rough. And yet she still walked in New York Fashion Week. What a trooper. (laughs) She managed to keep it together. The showing of skin must go on. Okay, Michael, speaking of skin and strange behavior. Let's talk about this story that emerged in Blue Blood, Connecticut this week. Okay, this is a story that Rich Cohen, who lives up in Connecticut, sort of flagged for Graydon and myself and you this week. Rich, who covered the murder done by Photos Dulos up there in a multi-part series, super informative piece for us. And this is a story Rich flagged. It broke in the New York Times this week, and it's about a woman, 53-year-old mother and wife named Hadley Palmer, living up in 
the Greenwich, Connecticut enclave where there's multi-million dollar estates favored by hedge fund moguls, come with their own private security force oftentimes. And there was news that broke in this enclave of Bellhaven that she's pleaded guilty to sex crimes for making secret videos of minors engaged in intimate behavior in her home. So you want to talk about crazy? There you go. I mean, I can just imagine how, how did this happen, right? Like this is a mother who, according to some gossip that I've heard in the last 24 hours, has four kids of her own. So how did this possibly unfold? Like, was she just trying to be a cool mom who was like letting her kids have parties and then secretly filming them fooling around downstairs in the basement? Who knows? But it's really, I mean, it's so disturbing on many levels. And this has really shaken this ultra-wealthy enclave of Greenwich, Connecticut. So this is something that we're going to see more and more of, but it's a really disgusting, revolting story in a lot of ways and also really confounding. Well, I mean, here's some of the details. The authorities say that she committed the crimes in 2017 and 18 in Bellhaven, where, according to the New York Times, she'd been living in a $10 million 19th century Victorian home. So she was arrested last October on several charges that included employing a minor in an obscene performance, three counts of voyeurism, second-degree possession of child sexual abuse imagery, and risk of injuring a child. And as Rich said in an email, it's always the cool parent that you got to be suspicious of. You're always warning your kids to be wary of people that they meet over the internet. I'm not in the habit of warning them to watch out for the parents of their friends. I'm looking forward to seeing where Rich goes with it. All right. Well, delving back. Delving or delvey? back. Delving back into the latest issue of Airmail. Michael, what do we have this week? What's happening in our world? Where would you like to begin, Ashley? It's ladies' choice. It's still, I'm still in the Valentine's Day mood. You're so, so magnanimous. Okay, what do you got? All right, let's start with the fluffy stuff. Everyone's always saying, where should I go out to eat in New York when I come to town? All right, there's one definitive answer right now. The Fasano has opened up in here in our fair town. Now, have you ever been to the Fasano in Brazil? No, I haven't. Okay, they have the most killer hotel in Rio, and they have a power restaurant in Sao Paulo that's sort of like Brazil's equivalent to the Four Seasons. And after 35 years of trying to make it work in Manhattan, this group has finally figured out a fabulous place to do it, and they are opening up on Park Avenue in a space that was once occupied as the final home of the Four Seasons restaurant, and it's pretty spectacular. This is going to be the new power lunch spot in post-pandemic Manhattan. I am going to make that bet. And you haven't been there yet? I haven't been there yet. It actually, it's opening like imminently. I bet one of our reporters has been there, Jay Cheshies, and he just checked it out for us and had a really interesting interview with Mr. Fasano and tells us all about the story behind it and how it ended up there. Turns out that this guy had a sort of friendly competition with Daniel Balud over who could find the most glorious space for a restaurant. And Daniel Balud won and ended up with Danielle. And this guy has spent the past 35 years trying to find something to rival it. And now he has. Huh. Okay. So this is where the gorgeous crowd is going to see and be seen for the next few weeks. So if you want to spot the next Anna Delvey in the making, this might be the place. Your little tidbit last week about the piano bar, the nines. I got so many people asked, oh, you've been there? And I had to sort of admit, like, no, I haven't. And even Brooke was like, I want to go. When are we going to go? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So, I mean, Michael, this is just my MO, just like out and about in the world. Like the truffle hound of cool things, Mike. I'm doing my best. That's my job. Look, I'm just out here flirting with Omicron and trying to make magic happen. And then we also have another retreat. If you really want to get away, there's a new resort from Auberge Collections, which is a purveyor of excellent hotels all over the place in Costa Rica. And Laura Nielsen, one of our reporters, went there and checked it out. So if you're looking for a place to go this spring break, it's called Alta Gracia. And it's a very wellness-focused joint, but not in an excessive 
Grizzly Goopy way. On the subject of well-known people, will you take me through this story by Judith Newman about the new thing that's called, as I sort of see it, is my working headline for this Andy Warhol used to say, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. But now it seems like in the future, which is here, everyone will be able to talk to a famous person for 15 minutes, right? Yes. So in the attempt to disrupt the self-help industry, a lot of savvy Silicon Valley types are tackling this by coming up with new platforms. And there's one that is called Intro.co. And on Intro.co, what you're able to do is browse their roster of experts. And it's largely people from the worlds of fashion, beauty, and design. So let's think like Rachel Zoe, your friend Nate Berkus, some famous astrologers. And you can really rent their time, but you just have access to their brain. And you can say, all right, how can I lose 15 pounds in three days? Or how can I look 25 years younger? Or do I need a facelift? Or what color paint should I choose for my bedroom? And these experts will weigh in quickly and expediently and give you information you need. So we sent Judith Newman, one of our roving writers to try this out for us. And she came away kind of addicted. It's a funny romp through like what 15 minutes and a couple hundred dollars can get you. I think it's also what allows you to say like, oh, at their next dinner party. It's funny. I was just talking to Rachel Zoe about this. I asked her advice on what I should wear tonight. And you could actually not be lying. And so you talk to that person if that's important to you. I tried a similar site to this. It's called The Expert. And when I was trying to figure out what to do with my kitchen that made absolutely no sense, I enlisted this guy, Jake Arnold, from The Expert to tell me what to do. And it was super helpful because in 15 minutes, he was like, here's the paint color. Here are the light fixtures. Here are the chairs that you should buy. Now, once I totaled it all up, the grand total was like $45,000. So needless to say, I did none of it. But in theory, it's a great idea. And I think you're going to see a lot more stuff like this in the future. Hmm. All right. Michael, just imagine like maybe you could rent yourself out for 15 minutes to tell people what Antonioni movies they have to watch. Okay, moving along. Moving along. This is another strange association we have in the issue this week, which is I would headline this as, did you know that Don Johnson of Miami Vice is responsible for one of the greatest skincare innovations ever to come to market? This is really weird. I've been using these products for a while, Augustinus Batter. They're wildly expensive, but also quite effective. And Linda Wells writes about them in her column for us this week. And it turns out that this guy is some like kind of cerebral German scientist who is inventing a cream to treat wounds, as so many of these origin stories go. And it turns out that he really stumbled onto something effective. And weirdly, he had a connection to Melanie Griffith, who introduced him to Don Johnson. And Don Johnson became some type of a backer for this. Anyway, I had no idea that that was even the case. But Don, on behalf of all of us in search of better skin, we thank you. Yeah. So this doctor comes up with this extraordinary cream that even helped a woman with severe burns and the skin to rejuvenate. And as Don Johnson tells Linda, like, I get pitched by these people investment opportunities all the time. And anyway, Melanie and I went to go see what this guy was doing. And he said, of course, like when they went to Germany, the press got a hold of it and theorized that Don Johnson was there for a butt lift and some sort of cosmetic surgery, which he says, that's all I really need is a butt lift. But he ended up sort of putting his name and some investment behind it and helped bring it to market. So stranger things have happened, right? Stranger things have happened. And we have many of them in this week's issue of Airmail. Well, take us through what's happening in Central Park. So this is a story by Joanna. She, if you remember, a few months ago broke the news here in Airmail about the Trump Organization and how the Manhattan DA was looking into how they were using Walman Rink to potentially mm, float money through the organization because it was a largely cash-run business. And 
Then after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, then Mayor Bill de Blasio sort of brayed very loudly that he was going to strip the Trump organization from its contract to manage Wallman Rink. And just before he left office back in November when Wallman opened, there was a big ceremony at which de Blasio, as usual, out there like claiming credit for something. And He was all happy because he found the new operator, first new operator for the park in two decades. And I just remind people, Woolman Rink is a cherished institution in Central Park, but he found a new partner. It's called Woolman Park Partners, an entity that consists of a real estate developer whose chairman is a billionaire, Steve Ross, as well as a gentleman named Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who made their fortunes at Apollo and Blackstone, private equity billionaires. Now, What's interesting is, as Joanna reveals in this week's issue, this is not, rather than making the brink run by a nonprofit entity, this is seems to be a for-profit thing. And the complication is that you've basically taken the park contract for Woman Rink, stripped it from Donald Trump, and basically given it to two of his cronies only in New York. Yes, indeed. I'm in Los Angeles right now, Michael, as you know. <laughs> Let me tell you, it might be crazy town out there, but the beach is still gorgeous and the restaurants are fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Broadcasting live from Shutters on the Beach. <laughs> Don't joke. You know it's my ultimate dream to live in a Nancy Myers movie and I'm living out that fantasy. I guess that's one of us. God, now everybody knows where to find me. All right, people, it's true. I'm here. All right, I'm ready to hang out. Well, okay, if you're in Los Angeles, Ashley, mm-hmm. how did you get out there? I hope you didn't fly... Eastern Airlines. Certainly not. This is one of those like hellish travel stories that it's good justification just to stay home. So this comes from Elena Claverino. Like when I hear Eastern Airlines, I think of back in the 70s and 80s, it was one of the storied airlines right up there with Pan Am, but then went out of business or was absorbed or whatever it was in one of those mergers. So now it's back. I don't even know it's back, but is it back or is it not back? Oh, it's back for the unlucky few who happen to be flying it. However, some probably wished it had gone away. Right. So the story here is Elena Cleverina, one of our editors, she recently was down to Uruguay. And it turns out that Eastern Airlines, founded in 1926, it ruled the skies for much of the 20th century, was one of the big four domestic airlines along with American TWA United. But then in 2018, it then folded and then was relaunched in January 2020. But Elena Cleverino booked passage on it to go down to Uruguay back in December. And she discovered, this is how old the plane was, it still had seats with the ashtrays in the armrest. Okay, if that's not enough to make you just get off right away, like, I don't know what is. The story gets worse from here. It's like, they all sit down, the pilot makes an announcement. Go, guys, we're fueling up the plane. Fast forward six hours, they're airborne, and then the pilot comes on the speaker again. Uh Uh-oh, turns out there's a maintenance issue, not to be alarmed. Then they make an emergency landing back at Miami International. Six of the plane's eight tires burst upon landing. Like, cue the firefighters. I mean... This is just the kind of nightmare stuff that you don't hear about. And I'm not sure. I mean, maybe if it were a more popular airline like JetBlue or United or something like that, it would have been all over Twitter. Yeah. So I guess just when you're looking online, don't be taking that recommendation for that cheap flight on Eastern Airlines. Yeah. Come fly the friendly skies. Public service journalism right here, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Well... 
Speaking of a public service, we do have the latest and greatest from Trump land. So James Walcott is here. I don't know how many of you know this, but common every time a president leaves office, they want to write their autobiography, their memoir of what they saw there. Trump has not done that nor announced a deal for it. However, he did recently publish a book called Our Journey Together. And it is a coffee table book featuring large photographs of Trump getting on and off Air Force One. And Trump, quote unquote, wrote it. He wrote the captions for it, basically almost like what you'd see on his tweets. He wrote captions for all the photographs. And it's now selling for anywhere from $75 to, if you want it signed, $230. He's quickly made a lot of money on this. And James Walcott took on the assignment of reading the book for us, and he's here to talk about it this week. Ashley, I want to say something. What's that? I feel a distance between us. Michael, fear not. Our bond is as strong as ever, but these certainly are challenging days. That's why legendary jewelry designer and artist David Yerman created its new Come Closer campaign, which celebrates the joy of closeness and connection in our challenging times. Tell me more. Featuring intimate images of Scarlett Johansson, a native New Yorker, and Henry Golding, it's shot against the backdrop of David Yerman's perennial inspiration and home of New York City. That sounds like just the inspiration I need right now. The new campaign, with 20 images and two short films, will lift anyone's spirits, as will the Yerman Collection, which features contemporary jewelry defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, as well as Cable, the brand's artistic signature. Perhaps best of all, David Yerman has committed to donating 20% of proceeds from a curated assortment of men's and women's designs to its Unity Fund which works in partnership with the Robin Hood Foundation to alleviate poverty in New York City. To shop the collection and to see the photos and short films, go to davidyearman.com. That's davidyearman.com. Okay, Mr. Wolcott, thank goodness you've been keeping up with all things Donald Trump because someone's got to do the job. So you tackle his latest project in the issue this week, but tell us what on God's green earth has he been up to? Well, this book doesn't really tell you what he's been up to. It gives you more a hint of what he wants to do. The book is a sort of photo, it's a photo illustrated scrapbook of the highlights of his presidency. So you don't get things like, he'll show you the ceremony for his Supreme Court judge, but he won't There's no indication that it ended up being a super spreader event. He makes his bout of COVID, which was obviously a very serious bit, then followed by his victory lap. But he makes it sound like this was a brief, annoying interval until I went back on the job for the American people. So the whole psychodrama of his COVID case is glossed over. But the book is published. It's the only book published by this outfit called Winning Team. And so it's meant to signal he wants to come back. He intends to come back. A lot of the what little text there is is about we'll come back better than ever. And uh, da, da. so it's as much a mission state. And there's also the aspect that no reputable publisher is going to is going to risk paying him a lot of money for his memoirs. So he has to, to, in effect, self-publish. Well, it's kind of like what he's doing with social media, right? He's trying to invent his own network. Yeah, yeah, because he's been barricaded off. They've built a moat and kept him out. And so he's got to start his own thing. The problem is that Trump 
despite all the people who give him money, he never really wants to spend the real money or have the real finesse to do it right. So when he does these things, they kind of fall apart fairly quickly. I suspect that's what will happen with his new social media thing. It'll just get flooded with with trolls and it'll have all kinds of hacking problems. He just kind of throws it off like, you know, build me something, do something, you know, just issue orders. How do you see him as a critic, Jim? How do you see him as a user and a manipulator of media? Well, I think he's very good at it. And I think the television training paid off. I think all those years on The Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice. And he also realized that the mockery he got from the media didn't register with his followers, in fact, may have made them more fervent. So if he did something grandiose that everybody made fun of, that actually didn't hurt him at all with his base. They were fine with it. So also the fact that he, he never seemed to sleep, all of a sudden it'd be like, 5.30 in the morning, would wake up in the morning like, oh, my God, he did these tweets at 5.30 a.m. And they were usually petty. I mean, they were usually utterly petty shots at reporters or other politicians, which the book is also has a fair amount of. So you just never knew where it was going to come from. He didn't keep office hours. I mean, one of the things in the book is he does shout outs to like virtually everybody on prime time at Fox News. I mean, we get a Sean Hannity page. We get even people who aren't even that big, like Jesse Waters. Jesse Waters, fine. Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram. I mean, all of them are in this. So he knows who he's playing to. So I'm actually sort of surprised he hasn't been on Fox News more than he has since he packed up. I mean, he's very sneering about Obama. It's like eight years of nothing and apologizing for America. And there's even a thing where there's a photograph of workers in the White House. And it said, after eight years of Obama in the White House, we needed to spruce up. So there's this hint that the Obamas left the place tawdry. And when you think about how gracious the Obamas were to Trump, considering everything at that inaugural, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. As you said, it's a pure vanity production, but as all things, he kind of half-asses it, right? Yeah. But I will say it's very shrewd that he gave it the title, Our Journey Together, because that sort of undercuts the me, me, me more, 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 because the way of embracing his followers and say, this was our journey. Never mind that I'm the one who profited entirely from it. I mean, I'm the one who got all the goodies. You just showed up at rallies. But that's the thing. It's like it's our journey together as if it's part of a larger mission. I don't know who came up with the title, if it was Trump or someone else, but it's very shrewd. It is shrewd because, I mean, you're making me think, wasn't the title of Bill Clinton's autobiography, My Life? Yeah. The epitome of a baby boomer. And most of political memoirs have these noble sounding titles. And so Trump is sort of trying to squeeze in with that. Well, one of the words he uses most in this book is love. He actually sounds like some sort of not like preacher, but like a Vegas entertainer. Henny Youngman used to come out on stage. Nobody remembers Henny Youngman anymore, but he'd come out with his violin and he'd go, I love this crowd. And Trump is full of things like all these people showed up for my rally and I love all of them. He'll show a thing of the military and he'll say, and I love them. 
there's this sense of like he's just throwing love around like Elvis throwing the scarves at the end. And yet you feel like, of course, when Trump goes back to Mar-a-Lago, it's like, well, don't let him through the front gate, for God's sake. It's like something out of the righteous gemstones. Jim, since we have you here, Ashley and I are always giving recommendations of things we're watching, reading, thinking about. I'm sure our listeners would love to know what's in Jim's mind. Like, what are you watching right now that's gotten you excited? Well, apart from the Olympics, there's a British series. It's now completed called Unforgot with Nicola Walker. It's a detective series. There are four seasons of it. It is one of the very best shows in that genre I've ever seen. And Nicola Walker is just fabulous in it. And I say this after I've been very disappointed with nearly all the big crime series as they did their last seasons. I found incredibly disappointed and disappointing, including Line of Duty and the French one, Spiral. They all kind of fell apart. Unforgotten is on Amazon Prime, among other things. It's real. I just can't recommend it highly enough. Also, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Moon Knight. So that's my highbrow enthusiasms. Of course, I'm thrilled about the return of Better Call Saul when we get that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jim. We really appreciate your insight and your time and your recommendations. Thank you. Michael, some former presidents go out in the world and try to be diplomats and solve the world's large problems, like Jimmy Carter. We're looking at you. Then you've got Donald Trump, who's going to write captions and make a fortune out of them. If this is not a metaphor for his leadership style, I don't know what is. I'm surprised he's not going to show up on that platform you mentioned, intro.com, and like, hey, you want presidential advice? Pay me for 15 minutes and I'll give it to you. I just gave him an idea, didn't I? All right. Well, I think we're grateful to Jim for keeping up with Donald Trump so that we don't have to. Yeah. Hey, so Donald Trump, you might want to think he has lived a great life. That's for you to decide. But actually, I did want to just note one great life here this week, if I may. Please do. Ivan Reitman, the film director and producer, who you may know, not know his name, but if you're a film geek like myself and Ashley, you do, you may know his work. And most specifically, I think he's responsible for the trifecta of Bill Murray movies that made him a star. Meatballs, Stripes, and Ghostbusters in the late 70s and early 80s. He wrote or directed or produced those, as well as produced his first film, Animal House. And he brought so much joy through his films. You see his influence, I think, still in the films of guys like Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, Will Ferrell, and Part of Reitman's skill and genius was he was able to take these actors who'd come out of improv comedy and kind of marshal their forces, just like Apatow has done with Rogan and Will Ferrell. He had an incredible life story. He was born in Slovakia. His mother had survived Auschwitz. And when he was a boy of four, the family fled in the hold of a barge. And they eventually reached Toronto, where he strangely like then got into the improv comedy scene, then met Rick Moranis as well and other people. So just a guy who had an extraordinary influence on film, and comedy, and I think who's, like I say, whose impact you still see in movies today. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, that's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible body of work he created with those comedies, which brought a lot of joy to a lot of people and made stars, as I say, out of people like Bill Murray and others. So, And as I said, his lineage still lives on. Marvelous. 
But on the subject of movies and all things fun, Ashley, what do you got to recommend for me this week? All right. I got a spicy one, Michael. It is not often that I do a double take when reading the New York Times book reviews, but it happened last week when I was reading Allison P. Davis's review of Anonymous Sex, which is a new collection of stories edited by Hillary Jordan and Cheryl Lulentan. This is a collection of erotica, I suppose you would say. it's, But it's from very well-known writers, many of whom we know, some of whom are friends of ours, and they are not attributed to their stories. So you see a list of contributors, and then you read the stories, and it's up to you to guess who is attached to which one. Now, some of them are better than others. Some of them are actually really wonderful. But in the New York Times book, I'm sorry I have to read this because it's really something. The reviewer, Alison P. Davis, for the New York Times, wrote in her review... And I quote, the building tension in history lesson overwhelmed me so much that I needed to pause in the middle to relieve some tension of my own. Okay, not that we are clutching our pearls here on morning meeting, but I just can't recall a time when I've ever read about a New York Times book reviewer stopping reading in order to masturbate. But that's just me. My, maybe my memory is short. I have nothing to add here. <laughs> Anyway, it became a meme on Twitter, but I am now just like blatantly needling our friend whose story is in this and encouraging you all to check it out and enjoy the stories and also try to figure out who wrote which one. The contributors are great. Some of them are really great writers. Helen Oyayemi, Jason Reynolds, Edmund White, Tia O'Brent, Mary Louise Parker, and Peter Godwin. So read on and weep. Nothing to add there, Michael. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Struck mute. Struck mute. Okay. All right. On that note, what do you have for us? Something hopefully less salacious. Well, I guess it would be in a, the theme of relationships, not so sexual, but I've been thinking, noting recently, there's a new Jennifer Lopez movie out with Owen Wilson, and everyone's sort of like saying, the rom-com is back. There haven't been rom-coms in a long time. Hollywood has forgotten to make them. I have not seen it yet, but it made me think of a classic rom-com that I think a lot of people haven't seen, and it's probably more of a Hollywood used to call a screwball comedy. And it is from 1941. I know it's going way back, but it's one of the great ones. It's directed by Howard Hawks. It stars Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. And it is a very funny premise. It concerns a group of professors all living in one house up near Columbia University, and they're writing an encyclopedia. And they're all bachelors. They live there. This woman takes care of them. And Cooper is the youngest professor, and he has to write the entry on slang. And so he decides to go out on the streets of New York and hear what common New Yorkers are saying. And he ends up in a nightclub where Barbara Stanwyck is a performer, and she's singing this song with Gene Cooper Orchestra, and she's got all this slang. And Cooper wants to go interview her. Anyway, as in any screwball comedy, lots of twists and turns. She's the wisecracking dame. He's the kind of straight shooting nerd. But of course, what happens? They fall for each other. And she then has, it turns out, she's got a mobster boyfriend she's trying to run away from. It's really fun, witty, smart, fast-paced. Script is co-written by Billy Wilder, so you know you're in good hands. It's a real treat. And then do the Jennifer Lopez rom-com. Well, Michael, thank you so much for that recommendation. And thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Jim, for making your magic happen once again. Again, and thank you to David Yerman, our sponsor for this week's episode. And Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is 
produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. But we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.